The House is out of session and will not return until Wednesday, March 22. The Senate will return Tuesday, March 14, and will stay in session through Thursday. Last week in the House, the House came back on Tuesday and took up and passed two bills under suspension of the rules. On Wednesday, the House took up and passed a rule, then took up and defeated H. Conres 21. That was a resolution directing the President to remove U.S. armed forces from Syria. The vote against the resolution was 321 to 103, with 47 Republicans and 56 Democrats voting in favor, and 171 Republicans and 150 Democrats voting against. Then the House took up and passed a bill under suspension of the rules. Then the House took up H.R. 140, the Protecting Speech from Government Interference Act, a bill that would prohibit federal government employees from censoring the speech of others while acting in an official capacity. The House took up and defeated two amendments, then broke for the day. On Thursday, the House came back into session and returned to consideration of the Protecting Speech from Government Interference Act. After defeating the Democrat motion to recommit, the House passed the bill on a straight party-line vote, with 219 Republicans voting in favor and 206 Democrats voting against. Then the House took up H.J. Res. 27, a Congressional Review Act resolution of disapproval to overturn the rules submitted by the Department of the Army, Corps of Engineers, Department of Defense, and the Environmental Protection Agency relating to revised definition of the waters of the United States. That resolution passed by a vote of 227 to 198. On Friday, the House took up and passed S-619, Senator Josh Hawley's COVID-19 Origin Act, a bill to have the Director of National Intelligence declassify intelligence relating to the origins of COVID. That bill passed unanimously, as it had done in the Senate the week before, and now goes to the President. Last week in the Senate, the Senate came back to work on Monday and voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of Robert Stewart Ballou to be a U.S. District Judge for the Western District of Virginia. On Tuesday, the Senate voted to confirm him to that position. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on and then to confirm the nominations of Andrew G. Shopler to be U.S. District Judge for the Southern District of California and Aaron Aramanian to be a U.S. District Judge for the Southern District of New York. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of Patrice H. Kunesh to be the Commissioner of the Administration for Native Americans at the Department of Health and Human Services. On Wednesday, the Senate voted to confirm her to that position. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of Danny Werfel to be Commissioner of Internal Revenue. Then the Senate took up and passed H.J. Res. 26, a joint resolution disapproving the action of the District of Columbia Council in approving the revised Criminal Code Act of 2023. The resolution was passed by a vote of 81 to 14, with a majority of Senate Democrats crossing party lines to vote with Republicans to overturn the D.C. City Council's Act to weaken the penalties for some violent crimes. We'll talk more about this in a moment. On Thursday, the Senate voted to confirm Danny Warfel to serve as Commissioner of Internal Revenue. Then the Senate voted to confirm James Edward Simmons, Jr. to be U.S. District Judge for the Southern District of California, and Araujo Can to be a U.S. Circuit Judge for the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. And then they were done. This week in the Senate, the Senate will return Tuesday, with the first vote set for 5.30 p.m. At that time, the Senate will proceed to a roll call vote on cloture on the nomination of Brent Neiman to be a Deputy Undersecretary of the Treasury.
Then, based on the majority leader's cloture filings, I anticipate we'll see votes on the nominations of Eric M. Garcetti to be ambassador to the Republic of India, Ravi Shadari to be an assistant secretary of the Air Force, and Laura Taylor Kale to be an assistant secretary of defense. On Thursday, the Senate is likely to vote on a procedural measure to advance a bipartisan bill that scraps the 1991 and 2002 authorizations for the use of military force in Iraq. The bill cleared the Senate Foreign Relations Committee last week on a bipartisan vote of 13 to 8, and it has enough Republican support that it is expected it will easily clear a filibuster. Expect a cloture vote on a motion to proceed this week and a final floor vote next week. Now to gas stoves. We told you in January they were coming for your gas stoves, and we're telling you again, because last Wednesday the Consumer Product Safety Commission kicked off its campaign by putting out an official request for information on any hazards associated with gas stoves. The RFI is typically the first step in a process that ends in an official rulemaking. In this case, the CPSC is seeking public input from, quote, all stakeholders, such as consumers, manufacturers, government agencies, non-governmental organizations, and researchers, end quote, about, quote, chronic chemical hazards associated with the use of gas ranges and proposed solutions, end quote. The RFI, quote, seeks comment on all significant aspects of the issue, including information related to the scope and scale of potential chronic chemical hazards, exposures, and risks associated with gas range use, data sources and approaches CPSC should consider when completing an evaluation of chronic chemical hazards, exposures, and risks related to gas range use, and proposed solutions related to any chronic chemical hazards, exposures, and risks associated with gas range use. Said CPSC Commissioner Richard Trumka Jr. about the announcement of the RFI, quote, the trust between CPSC and the American consumer exists because actions like the one we take today make clear that we only act in service to consumer safety. The request for information furthers our commitment to American consumers because step one in confronting a potential hazard is understanding its scope and the options for addressing it, end quote. Those two sentences contain multiple lies. First, the the CPSC most certainly in this case is not acting in service to consumer safety. It's acting in service to a green energy agenda that says fossil fuels must be banned. That is, the agenda begins at the end point, banning fossil fuels, and then works backward to figure out a way to ban fossil fuels. That's where the alleged chronic chemical hazards associated with the use of gas ranges come in. Claiming that there's a chronic chemical hazard, read a health risk, attached to the use of natural gas stoves, which, by the way, is very much in dispute, is just a convenient cover for the coercive arm of government power. Second, Trumka doesn't believe natural gas stoves present a potential hazard. He believes they pose a definite hazard. He uses the word potential to make himself sound reasonable, as if he has an open mind on this matter, rather than being what he actually is, an ideologue determined to promote the green energy agenda to which he is committed no matter what it takes. He shouldn't be using the word potential as an adjective to describe hazard, because he's using that word deliberately to create the false impression that he could conclude in the end that natural gas stoves pose no hazard at all. And that's wrong. He's not open to that conclusion. On this matter, his mind is most definitely made up. 
That Trumpka considers natural gas stoves a very real and very dangerous hazard is not in doubt. In fact, he considers them not just any hazard, but an even worse kind of hazard, the hidden hazard. And even worse than that, natural gas stoves, he believes, are hidden hazards that cannot be made safe. He said exactly that in an early January interview with Bloomberg News. Quote, this is a hidden hazard. Any option is on the table. Products that can't be made safe can be banned, end quote. Hidden hazards that can't be made safe? Well, of course, there's only one thing to do about them. Ban them. Get the federal regulators in here pronto. Ban them. What in the world are you waiting for? If you haven't had a chance to follow up on our call to action regarding gas stoves, please go to teapartypatriots.org forward slash take action to see what you can do to get the CPSC to back off and leave our gas stoves alone. Now to Democrats and crime. Something nutty happened at the start of last week. Before the Senate got a chance to vote on the House's privileged resolution to overturn the District of Columbia City Council's action to revise the city's criminal code to weaken the penalties for some violent crimes, the chairman of the City Council sent a letter to the Senate trying to withdraw the bill from consideration before it could be voted down. The letter was addressed to Vice President Kamala Harris in her role as President of the Senate. D.C. City Council Chairman Phil Mendelson asserted that he had the power to withdraw the bill because the Senate had not yet acted on it. But the D.C. City Council had no authority over the measure that the Senate was going to vote on because the measure the Senate was going to vote on was a different measure entirely. Referring to the D.C. Home Rule Act, a Senate aide explained, not only does the statute not allow for a withdrawal of a submission, but at this point, the Senate Republican privileged motion will be acting on the House disapproval resolution rather than the D.C. Council's transmission to the Senate. In other words, the D.C. City Council chairman was so unserious that he didn't even know that what he was asking for was a legal impossibility. It's no wonder even a majority of his own party members in the Senate abandoned him. Now to illegal immigration. On Tuesday of last week, Biden administration officials leaked to mainstream media outlets the news that the administration is trying to figure out how it's going to handle an expected surge in illegal immigration following its May lifting of the COVID state of emergency. One of the options apparently under consideration is reversing its policy on detaining illegal immigrant families and returning to the Trump-era policy of detaining families who were apprehended crossing the border illegally. Left-wing groups and the media, predictably, went nuts. On Wednesday, a federal district judge ruled that the Biden administration's policy of allowing illegal immigrants to enter and then be released into the interior of the country is illegal. We talked about this case back in January when the case went to trial. United States District Judge T. Kent Weatherell II for the Northern District of Florida, ruling in the case of Florida v. United States, issued a blistering 109-page ruling declaring the Biden catch-and-release policy is unlawful and due to be vacated. He denied the Biden administration's motion for summary judgment, vacated the administration's parole plus ATD policy under the Administrative Procedures Act, and gave the Biden administration one week to file an appeal and comply with federal law and his ruling. Wrote Weatherell, quote, The court finds in favor of Florida because, as detailed below, the evidence establishes 
that defendants have effectively turned the southwest border into a meaningless line in the sand and little more than a speed bump for aliens flooding into the country by prioritizing alternatives to detention over actual detention and by releasing more than a million aliens into the country on parole or pursuant to the exercise of prosecutorial discretion under a wholly inapplicable statute without ever initiating removal proceedings, end quote. He continued, quote, collectively, these actions were akin to posting a flashing, come in, we're open, sign on the southern border. The unprecedented surge of aliens that started arriving at the southwest border almost immediately after President Biden took office and that has continued unabated over the past two years was a predictable consequence of these actions. Thus, like a child who kills his parents and then seeks pity for being an orphan, it is hard to take defendants' claim that they had to release more aliens into the country because of limited detention capacity seriously when they have elected not to use one of the tools provided by Congress and they have continued to ask for less detention capacity in furtherance of their prioritization of alternatives to detention over actual detention, end quote. As of this writing, there has been no word from the administration on its expected appeal, but I cannot imagine the administration will not appeal. Now to energy development. On Friday, Bloomberg News reported that, quote, the Biden administration has decided to authorize a mammoth ConocoPhillips oil project in northwest Alaska, despite arguments by opponents that it will exacerbate climate change, according to people familiar with the matter. After weeks of deliberation, senior advisors have signed off on the move, which represents one of the most momentous climate decisions yet for President Joe Biden. The approval is set to be released next week by the Interior Department, end quote. The site in play is called the Willow Site, and it's in the National Petroleum Reserve, Alaska. It would allow an estimated 600 million barrels of oil to be tapped over the 30-year projected life of the oil field. The project will cost an estimated $8 billion. The approximately 180,000 barrels per day of crude oil it is projected to eventually yield represents roughly 1.6% of current U.S. production. Left-wing activists and the media, predictably, went nuts. But White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre insisted that no final decision had been made. So stay tuned. Now to the Biden tax hike rollout. As expected, President Biden on Thursday released his proposed budget for fiscal year 2024. He proposes spending $6.9 trillion over the next fiscal year, and he proposes to raise taxes by $5 trillion over the next decade. Our friend Grover Norquist at Americans for Tax Reform said, in dollar terms, it's the largest tax increase in American history. To put this in context, a $5 trillion tax hike is more than what Biden proposed last year, when he still had control of both the House and the Senate. In fact, in the fall of 2021, when he was trying to lock in Joe Manchin on Biden's Build Back Better plan, he was then pushing for a $2 trillion tax increase. Biden's tax increase proposal includes a 25% tax on the nation's wealthiest families, households worth at least $100 million quadrupling the recently implemented excise tax on stock buybacks from 1% to 4%, raising the corporate tax by a third, from 21% to 28%, which would make it higher even than the corporate tax rate in communist China, 
raised the tax U.S. companies owe on their foreign, er, on their foreign earnings to 21%, doubling the 10.5% rate they now pay. Raising the top marginal rate from 37% to 39.6% for single filers who make more than $400,000 per year, or married couples who make more than $450,000 a year. And yes, you caught that math. That's a new marriage penalty, and it's a doozy. Raise the capital gains tax rate from 20% to 39.6% for people earning a million dollars or more. Eliminate the carried interest tax break. Raise the 3.8% Obamacare tax to 5% for those making at least $400,000. Institute a new tax on assets when an owner dies, ending a tax benefit that allowed the unrealized appreciation to go untaxed when transferred to an heir. This is going to make life very difficult for Democrats in tight races. West Virginia Democrat Senator Joe Manchin, who's up for re-election next year in a state that will likely vote 70% for the Republican presidential candidate, recognizes that. He noted that the budget has grown from $3.8 trillion 10 years ago to $6.9 trillion today. Quote, can we just see if we can go back to normal where we were before COVID? What was our trajectory before that? he asked on CNN Thursday. How did it grow so quickly? How do we have so many things that are so necessary that weren't before? End quote. Now to Gigi Song. We got a huge win Tuesday morning when Biden Federal Communications Commission nominee Gigi Song ceded defeat and withdrew her nomination from consideration. We had a bit to do with this fight. It's been one of our calls to action for the last several weeks. So give yourselves a pat on the back for a job well done. This was a serious fight and included no fewer than three Senate confirmation hearings. Sohn is a hard-left activist with a history of extreme partisanship. She called Fox News state-censored, I'm sorry, state-sponsored propaganda and said it was dangerous to our democracy. She called Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh an angry white man and accused Republicans of suppressing the vote. One of the keys to Sohn's withdrawal was a decision by West Virginia Democrat Senator Joe Manchin to announce his opposition to her nomination. He accused her of holding what he called partisan alliances with far-left groups. Now to that Twitter files hearing. On Thursday, the Weaponization of the Government Subcommittee of the House Judiciary Committee held a hearing on the Twitter files, featuring two independent journalists, Matt Taibbi and Michael Schellenberger, who had been granted access to internal emails and other company files. Schellenberger alluded to President Dwight Eisenhower's farewell address warning of what he called a military-industrial complex, exercising undue influence over government decision-making. Schellenberger warned of what he called a censorship industrial complex. Today, he said, American taxpayers are unwittingly financing the growth and power of censorship industrial complex run by America's scientific and technological elite, which endangers our liberties and democracy. The Twitter files, state attorneys, general lawsuits, and investigative reporters have revealed a large and growing network of government agencies, academic institutions, and non-governmental organizations that are actively censoring American citizens, often without their knowledge, on a range of issues. Taibbi told the lawmakers that he, quote, learned Twitter, Facebook, Google, and other companies developed a formal system for taking in moderation requests from every corner of government, end quote. 
He continued, quote, this is a grave threat to people of all political persuasions. The First Amendment and the American public accustomed to the right to speak is the best defense left against the censorship industrial complex. If there's anything that Twitter files show is that we're in danger of losing this most precious right, without which all democratic rights are impossible, end quote. Now to the HFC and the debt ceiling. Friday morning, the House Freedom Caucus announced to the world its thoughts on what official Washington could do to earn its votes on legislation to raise the debt ceiling. In a press conference and an official statement, the House Freedom Caucus said its members, quote, will consider voting to raise the debt ceiling contingent upon the enactment of legislation to cut current spending by ending President Biden's $400 billion student loan bailout, rescinding all unobligated unspent COVID-19 funds, recouping the $80 billion in IRS expansion funds, as well as billions of wasteful climate change spending in the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, and finding every dollar spent by Democrats that can be reclaimed for the American taxpayer. Cap future spending by setting top-line discretionary spending at the FY 2022 level for 10 years, allowing for 1% annual growth. Doing so will cut $131 billion in FY 2024 and save roughly $3 trillion over the long term by cutting the wasteful, woke, and weaponized federal bureaucracy. Furthermore, this enables Congress to use the appropriations process to address the many abuses and disasters caused by the Biden administration, such as the chaos on the southern border, COVID vaccine mandates and discrimination policies, and the unconstitutional pistol brace ATF rule. Importantly, 10-year spending caps at the FY 2022 level puts our budget on the path to balance while protecting Social Security retirement and Medicare benefits. Grow the economy by enacting major policy changes and reforms to the wasteful, woke, and weaponized federal bureaucracy, including, but not limited to, curtailing burdensome regulations by requiring congressional approval under the RAINS Act, unleashing the production of reliable domestic energy by ending federal regulations and subsidies, restoring Clinton-era work requirements on welfare programs, and passing a preemptive continuing resolution with non-defense discretionary spending restored to the pre-COVID FY 2019 level to force Congress to pass appropriations in a timely manner. End quote. The White House responded by referring to the HFC's debt reduction plan as tax breaks for the super wealthy and wasteful spending for special interests, end quote. Now, finally, to the Silicon Valley bank bailout. The second largest bank collapse in U.S. history occurred Friday as the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation shut down Silicon Valley Bank, also known as SVB. At the end of December, SVB held around $209 billion in total assets. As of Friday night, the FDIC has control of about $175 billion in customer deposits. Late Sunday evening, federal regulators announced that the federal government will step in to guarantee uninsured deposits at Silicon Valley Bank. In a joint statement, the Secretary of the Treasury, the Chairman of the FDIC, and the Chairman of the Federal Reserve Board said, quote, After receiving a recommendation from the boards of the FDIC and the Federal Reserve and consulting with the President, Secretary Yellen approved actions enabling the FDIC to complete its resolution of Silicon Valley Bank, Santa Clara, California, in a manner that fully protects all depositors. Depositors will have access to all of their money starting Monday, March 13. 
no losses associated with the resolution of Silicon Valley Bank will be borne by the taxpayer, end quote. The statement continued, quote, shareholders and certain unsecured debt holders will not be protected. Senior management has also been removed. Any losses to the deposit insurance fund to support uninsured depositors will be recovered by a special assessment on banks as required by law, end quote. We will have more to say on this in the coming weeks. For now, let me just say this. If you believe them when they say no losses associated with the resolution of Silicon Valley Bank will be borne by the taxpayer, then you're the guy P.T. Barnum was talking about. And that's our Washington Report for this week.